welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so <clears throat> you had to finish up with one chapter of Jeremiah and then the always uh, popular book of Lamentations, uh, at least through four chapters. Uh, and so, uh, but we ch- wrap up. Jeremiah with chapter 52, which, uh, if you remember the last time we read second Kings, like this is really how second Kings kind of wrapped up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost word by word that chapter and it kind of wraps up to the little bit of the, the sort of summary of what happened yeah. that Zedekiah was there. He wasn't a great King and Jerusalem fell and Zedekiah tried to flee, but ended up getting captured. Yeah. And so uh, not only that, but the temple was destroyed, which is kind of the most crucial matter of this time period, that the temple uh, was totally destroyed, the stuff was pillaged, the high priest was killed, and the question of what happens to Israel now. In captivity, how do they worship? Yeah, it's hard for us to understand the, the weight and the gravity of this temple being destroyed. But when you think back of what the temple represented to Israel, when it represented, you know, I mean, they, I'm sure they always thought, no matter what's going on, at least we still have the temple for Yahweh. And now they don't have that, the place where their God dwells. So what do they have to return to? What do they have to hope in or put their trust in, whether through word or actually through action? It, it feels like a complete loss of identity. Yeah, I mean, especially for the Southern Kingdom, because you got to yeah. imagine since the, the kingdom split, like the pride and joy of the Southern Kingdom is like, we still have the priests and we still have the temple, mm-hmm. while the Northern Kingdom had the various cows and everything else in their in their north and um so for them this is like well god god's still favoring us we still have the temple we're still here we haven't been destroyed um yeah. and now that goes away too yeah and so uh, the babylonians do what um it's not an uncommon practice in warfare they take all the uh people that are probably going to be beneficial for them and take them into exile so the wealthier the the more well-to-do um leaders are all taken mm-hmm. away into exile and yet we're given sort of a an odd end but an important end um jehoiachin uh we find out is released from prison now at first it's like who, well, who really cares if this random king gets released from prison but uh, if you remember um the, the lineage here jehoiachin's part of the the line of david and God has promised uh, that through David, there's going to be one. And Jeremiah has even promised, uh, talking about the, 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 the shoot that comes out of Jesse. Uh, and so to kind of wrap up by saying like, look, that, that promise, that, that lineage through David, we still have it. There's still, there's still a king out there, uh, even though he's not quite sitting on the throne eternally like we expect, but um, there's still a king uh, waiting. Yeah, I think the abrupt ending of Jeremiah is probably similar to the abrupt ending of Second Chronicles. It leaves room as an intention and is intentional by the author to be like, the story's not finished yet. And so what we see here is that the story isn't finished and that there is still a king. You know, God is still upholding his promise to keep someone in his line on the throne, which of course we'll see fulfilled through the Messiah. So any final thoughts? So I heard one commentator say that you shouldn't teach straight through the the book of Jeremiah because it's just too heavy. And it did feel really heavy to me, but not nearly as difficult to read this time around as when I've read it previously. And I think that's just because I paid more attention to context, having a better idea of what's going on and having read so many of the other prophets. I just had had a better understanding. But I think personally, I just was really moved by Jeremiah's journey of fear and sorrow and grief at his call initially, but then watching him move to accept and receiving it. It just, it kind of feels like my story and probably a lot of our stories. And of course I still struggle with trusting God, but the more I see his faithfulness, the more I experience his goodness and his provision, the more willing I am to say yes to God, no matter what the cost. So it was cool to watch that part of Jeremiah's story. Yeah. It's interesting kind of coming off of uh, reading a little bit through Isaiah and Isaiah kind of always seems to have this like 
on the horizon kind of hope to him and sort of looking into the future a little bit. Uh, and Jeremiah <laughs> constantly felt like, I mean, you definitely had 30 through 33 where you had this new covenant promise, but constantly like the destruction is about to happen. The destruction is happening right now. Here's what happened with the destruction. It was like very current event. And, and it, and the kind of jumping between prophecy and narrative kind of helped drive that home. Um, but Jeremiah, I mean, just reading through it and, and this is always, uh, I think an important lesson, like obedience to God may not lead to your best life mm-hmm. now. And Jeremiah was told to speak this word. He was told right away that people weren't going to listen. He gets thrown into stocks. He gets beaten. He gets thrown to jail. He gets thrown into a dang cistern at some point. He gets dragged off to Egypt. Like all these things keep happening to him for simply telling people what God told him to do and to call people to repentance. And yet God never leaves and forsakes Jeremiah. Jeremiah is kind of given once like these little glimpses into the future. He's told about the branch out of Jesse. He's told about this new covenant. He's told about this future King. And so like God's still always with him, giving him just these pieces of hope in the midst of like circumstances that are definitely not going in Jeremiah's way. And, and sometimes we, we are in such a system that we define faithfulness by fruitfulness and growth Mm -hmm. and numbers and, um, and that's, that's success. But, um, Jeremiah is a successful prophet. He just wasn't successful in convincing people to repent, but he was successful in doing what God had told him to do and, and making sure we measure more faithfulness and obedience more than we measure, um, fruit that, that can seem false. It can seem like a false sense of, of, mm. of a marker to say yes. Yep. So lamentations, uh, we'll include a, the Bible project, uh, link as we do with most new books. But, um, in this one, it fe- almost feels like song of songs at times in the song of songs, uh, or song of Solomon, you had this back and forth between different voices. Um, and I think you have a little bit of that now there's different theories on how many voices, but I tend to think there's the main narrator and then the voice of, uh, Zion or Jerusalem or Judah, uh, being this, this female voice that's constantly speaking. Um, and, and I think the book, for, for all sorts of purposes creates a, a space for this kind of emotion that, that we literally, God goes out of his way to, to inspire somebody to write a book that includes just sorrow and brokenness and anger and grief and rage. And, and, and I think there's healthy ways to process those things and very unhealthy ways. And I think God has given imprecatory Psalms and lamentations and, and all these things for his people to learn how to bring those emotions mm-hmm. to him. Um, not irreverently, but, but taking those emotions to God. And um, there's a lot of structure in this book. Uh, it, it's, it's an alpha. If you, we're reading in Hebrew, you would notice right away that every line begins with the next letter in the alphabet. So there's 22 verses in the first chapter. Uh, we'll see this in the numbers, just in our numbering. It's 22 verses in the first chapter, the second, fourth, and fifth chapters. And then there's 66 in the middle in the third chapter. So it becomes, um, and if you're watching out for things like chiasms, it becomes very apparent. And I'll include a link of, of a structure uh, to the book as well uh, related to sort of the chiasmic structure. Yeah, so the lens through which to view this is that it was written during Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem in AD or BC 586. And it was most likely written to be prayed or to be sung in a worship service that was devoted to asking for God's forgiveness. And it actually became an annual tradition to read it or sing it when people marked the destruction of the temple. But I think the the theme here to remember is, especially as we talk through the chiasm or structure of this, is that it is hope, not despair. And I think there's something really unique to the way Lamentations is written and that it so clearly points to Christ's experience on the cross. So much of what we read in 
limitations. You could even almost read into Jesus praying or feeling or experiencing when he was on the cross. Yeah. And so it starts off reminding the the reader, like Jerusalem once was an amazing city, mm-hmm. but she is not anymore. The city's been destroyed. She's like a widow under a foreign king. There's sadness, there's bitterness, but there's a constant sort of acknowledgement of like, why did this happen? Well, God did bring it, but he brought it because of disobedience. And and the author even seems to to recognize uh, their their own the Israel's own mistakes, that the Lord was in the right and I have rebelled against his word. That um, there's sort of the idea. And there's a lot of images as well. So it feels kind of prophetic that God burned her to the bone. He smashed her like grapes in a wine press. Um, in the end of chapter one, it's interesting because there's, there's sort of finally an ask from the author. At first, the author's just talking, but then there's sort of an ask. But the simple ask is like, God, are you not going to deal with everybody else the same way you've dealt with us? Like, yes, we were wrong and we should be punished. And there's some recognition of that, but also sort of looking out at all these other countries who are also not acknowledging the Lord or obeying him and, and sort of like, this, this doesn't seem fair, God. Yeah, it seems to me here that the author, it's it's different than a lot of what we read where so many of the people were just really denying that any of this would happen, but it has happened. And the author is lamenting and grieving the emptiness and destruction of Jerusalem, um, comparing Jerusalem to an enslaved and comfortless widow. And a lot of what we read in here are references really to other prophecies we've read recently, um, but we see the other side of the fulfillment of these prophecies in this section. In chapter two, spend some time just describing how rough the destruction really is, that there's no temples, there's no more hope, there's no more festivals or priests or anything like that. People are hungry, they're hopeless, there's even babies dying because of uh, just how how wrecked things have gotten. Even the narrator's like, I'm stick to my stomach, I don't, I don't even know what to say at this point. Um, and, and the reminder in the refrain still that God has said this is going to happen all along. Like God, even going back to Deuteronomy 28, like this has been said, these are like specifically the consequences of, of just how wrecked things are going to be if you just trust in yourself and don't trust in God. And he was patient and he was patient and and he kept speaking and they just struggled to listen and listen and listen. And he finally reacted. And there's even a question at the end of chapter two, like the, the, the woman in the story being like, is this like, is this right? Are you really going to allow this? Is this okay with you, God? Um, which is an important question. And, and one more way to process this emotion and be like, uh, how, how is this allowed, God? So one of the things with the acrostic poems that we see here is that it's meant to communicate the completeness of suffering and the completeness of struggle with the whole, the A to Z of struggle. And this chapter really shows us the completeness of God's judgment on Jerusalem. I mean, previously they always saw God as their warrior and their protector, but now he has become enemy and they see the fullness of God's power kind of from the other side of the sword. But I think we can make this connection to God's wrath falling on Christ. We see God being the primary subject of this chapter, talking about the work he did, and then he initiated that on Christ. And so even when you think of Acts chapter two, it says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So, and even in the last few verses of this chapter, the poet cries out about the horrendous pain they're seeing and faces facing. And we can just hear Christ crying out at the same time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lived this very chapter on the cross. Yeah. And, and as much as the, the sort of city has been the one crying out saying this, this has been a struggle. I think we're abandoning God, but are abandoned by God. The narrator steps in being like, I, I understand this. Like I feel the same way. I feel like I've been abandoned by God. Like God's been like a line waiting to tear me apart or an archer waiting to shoot. And the narrator himself expresses some of his bitterness and sort of feeling like 
he doesn't even know what happiness even is anymore. And this is sort of where the pivot starts happening. Um, and as you read it, hopefully you notice this. It's sort of like, like I remember my bitterness and I remember this and I remember when God did this and I remember when he didn't answer. I remember all my sufferings, but I also remembered one other thing and I remembered hope. And, um, it's, it's, and he sort of moves into like, look, it's okay. It's probably okay to wait in this space. Like he kind of starts getting reflective in some of his language, like to sort of sit in silence. Let us consider something that, that I think starts becoming the essential middle of the letter that, that the Lord will not cast off forever. Um, and, and though he may cause grief, he will have compassion according to his steadfast love. Like he does not afflict from his heart and grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny man justice in the presence of the high, most high, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. And so, um, I think what God or what, what through the narrator is saying is like, look, God doesn't cast off people forever. Like he's not bringing all this suffering because he enjoys it. He's doing it because people are being crushed underfoot and God has risen against injustice and, and, and we're lamenting, but like we should stop. We should slow down and remember who God actually is in the midst of our, our crying out. And we know that we will be rescued because we have hope. And on the backside of that pausing, I think the narrator kind of comes around and it's like, well, let's, let's look back on this because the, it isn't just God to blame for sending the judgment. Like we are to blame because we've forgotten the Lord. Like let's, let's reflect on the fact that we are the causers of the suffering. Um, and, and we are the ones that, that, that are to blame. So let's return to the Lord. And then it starts moving back in sort of the darkness. I'll let Sarah talk in a second, but it kind of moves back into the darkness of the book. And, and I wonder if the setup is sort of the the first two and a half chapters in some ways, like just crying out and lamenting, just suffering, grief, sadness. But in the middle, the, the author's sort of like, okay, let's stop. Let's sit in the silence. Let's wait on the Lord. And let's remember that he does provide hope and he will not actually leave us here forever. And not only that, but but the reason why we're we're so sad and we're grieved and these 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 the situation is happening is because we contributed to it. Like we are actually culpable. And I'm not arguing that all sin or um all grief and all that is always because of individual person sin. Like I don't know if it's always sometimes it's external of you that this, those things happen. But here in this story, it definitely is uh, the author recognizing it was us that caused this, and and so as we sort of get to the other side of this chiasm, we're going to see sort of almost the same things kind of happen again. And it almost becomes a process for somebody reading through this to be like, yes, I'm bitter. I'm suffering. And I'm, I'm, I'm using that same language to call out to God and, and then just slow down. Remember who God is. Remember maybe our own culpability and why we're suffering and, and what have been our contributions to it. And now as we keep going through these cries, we have a much different perspective to go, this is the character of God. This is my, my, um, bring what I brought to the situation to cause the grief and pain. And now I can pray with a different perspective as I kind of go through the same things. So I think for me, the thing that stood out around the hope in this chapter is that, um, you know, we know most of us know the idea of God's, um, this verse specifically about his mercies being new every morning, but the context of it is so powerful. The author remembers the steadfast love of God with hope. And let's remember that God's steadfast love is his covenant love. So his love is promised to us without restraint and he will never stop loving us because his covenant is dependent on his faithfulness instead of ours. And we can have hope not only for heaven, uh, 
because the author doesn't necessarily point to heaven in this, but it also gives us hope for today. He gives us mercy every morning. And when you or when I are just in the throes of suffering and lament and sorrow, sometimes it just feels like heaven is too far away. I just need to get through today. But this passage reminds us that we have mercy for today. We can get through today because of God's covenant love that is still covering and over us. So I love the hope that is communicated um, for future, but also just for every moment, which is what a lot of us in this depth of suffering need to hear. Yeah. And then by chapter four, we kind of come back around to similar language, telling destruction of the temple. Uh, there's the eating of baby stuff that was tied in Deuteronomy, um, stuff we've covered. But the narrator has kind of at this point helped the audience process and has kind of pointed out, but like we had a primary hand in this suffering, the princes, the rich, like they're in the same boat. Um, and, and those who died are even the lucky ones in this situation. And, and he's kind of points out, no one thought Jerusalem would fall like this, but this is what God has done. And because of our leaders, because of our priests, because we were a corrupted country, um, we even, even the leaders were walking around. I love the image of sort of like they had blood on them, like clearly they're guilty, but they're acting like nothing's wrong. Um, and God has punished them to the point where they've learned their lesson and maybe the neighboring countries will too. Yeah. I love there's a verse in chapter four that says the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. And as I read that, I just immediately thought of Christ again. He has delivered us from exile, from bondage, from slavery for all time. All right, let's jump to Hebrews, which is no less complex than other stuff we're reading. Uh, and, um, and so we pick up actually this week and maybe uh, whatever translation you use, you might've started with the word since, but once again, in the Greek, it is therefore. And so uh, we start reading about this great high priest, but it's built upon what had just come and um, what have we had just had the argument of is let's there's it remains a Sabbath breath rest that, that God's word is spoken of. Like, so, so don't strive to enter that rest. So therefore this is where we started. Hold fast to our confession that Jesus is this great high priest ready to uh, bring us access to God. And so um, because of this, we can draw near with mercy and judgment and punishment. Like the invitation is into rest. And so if Jesus is the one who accomplishes that for us, like the invitation is into mercy, it is into um, not judgment and punishment, but, but grace. And so uh, the author starts moving into this high priest idea that we've read through this whole week. Yeah, I think we see the author really focusing on Jesus's humanity here because we can approach a God who really gets us and can sympathize with our weakness. I, I love the imagery here, but it talks about how he deals, deals gently with us when we are ignorant and wayward because he also walked in the flesh. And so because of that, we can draw near to his throne of grace. And when we go, we are going to find mercy. We're going to find grace to help us in time of need. I think sometimes if we've, um, or I know, I guess I should speak for me personally. Like I know if I've sinned or I've just been unfaithful or not leaned into God, I'm I'm afraid to go back to him and, and find restoration because I'm afraid he's going to be disappointed in me or something. But then this passage again reminds me that when I go to him, I go to a throne of mercy and a throne of grace where he is receiving me with forgiveness and open arms and inviting me back into an abiding relationship with him. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that argument's being made of um, the, the one who stands before the, the father, the one who... Um, is is saying forgive 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 is one who is like us it's not mm. one removed from us but one much more like us and same way that um 
that the feeling of, of the great high priest for the Israelites walking in there, it was like, Oh, like it's a human standing before God on our behalf. Like the same was true of Jesus in sort of the, the flesh. And so, but we'll start making the arguments on the other side of this. And, and the writer, um, the author kind of moves here saying like, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He is a source of eternal salvation. He's priest in order of Melchizedek, which uh, he will then unpack in the reverse order in chapter seven through 10. And so um, it kind of is a setup before he takes this little break from the second half of five through all of six. Um, and you got to imagine, uh, particularly if this is probably more sermon esque, that it sort of feels like he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. And then he sort of takes this pause to like sort of chastise his listeners. It's like, I, I feel like you guys aren't getting this stuff and you should mm-hmm. be getting this stuff. Like this Christ being better than Moses, Christ, I, like this should be clicking. You should be moving on to some of this stuff uh, and more skilled in the word and able to discern, but, but you guys are not doing this yet. And, and you, it's not that you leave behind Christ, but like the foundation has been laid. The foundation that we are no longer um, dealing with like the dead works of the law. Like we, we've we moved on from that and that's great. I'm glad the foundation is laid, but we got to start building upon that foundation. It's called a foundation to be built upon. So let's start building upon it and understanding and, and, and falling that much more in love with all that Christ actually is. And, and so this interjection is kind of thrown in there uh, for the for the audience. Yeah, it seems like the author really wants to do a deeper dive, but the readers are still sort of stuck in Christianity 101, which is around um, repentance and stuff, but he wants or she wants to go deeper. Um, And I think the lesson here is that maturity and faith comes through constant practice. Every day as believers, we get up and we ask God for help and we ask him for grace to live by the spirit. And little by little, we will better be able to know good from evil, sin from purity, and we'll be able to walk better according to his will. This is what solid food looks like. But Friends, be patient with your process wherever you are, but know that it takes work. Know that it takes constant practice. Yeah. And the invitation, just to be clear, is not to move on from the gospel, but it's to start building upon it. Yeah, and that's um, good. and so that's a that's a very different idea. It's not like, hey, I learned the basics of the gospel. Now I'm just gonna learn all these complicated arguing uh, things that theologians are constantly debating. It's, I've learned the gospel. I'm going to keep building upon the gospel. I'm going to keep reminding myself of what the gospel is, but I'm also going to continue to, to understand the depths of what the gospel really entails. Mm. Um, and there's a whole argument about... Um, uh, those that might have kind of left the faith, maybe they were part of the church and have kind of walked away. Um, there's a lot of different debates on how to interpret that. And, um, and it seems like uh, there's, there's some language around sort of present tense, those who are actively kind of crucifying Jesus, currently holding him in contempt, um, whether it's possible for them to, to also repent. And uh, I think the argument there is that those who are actively denying Jesus are also not those who are actively repenting. It's impossible to, to deny Jesus and repent at the same time. Um, does that mean they could be softened one day and be brought back around? Maybe. Uh, but the picture that was painted is, is sort of similar to the soils, too, where there was rain and it fell on a field. And some fields grew fruit, but there's also fields that there was some green that popped up at first, but all that time showed was that they were also weeds. And so, um, but the author's like, but I don't think that's you guys like keep at it. You've borne fruit. Keep, don't be sluggish. Keep, keep going after it. Mm, Yeah. Um, and then, uh, we get sort of this conversation around a promise and the concreteness of a promise and, um, and really God, God, 
as much as people guarantee promises in some ways, uh, that God with put his own reputation on the rhyme with Abraham and his collateral was his word itself. And it has been sure. So we have like this, the steadfast assurance. And now that steadfastness, that, that most assured unbreakable thing is in Jesus. We have this unbreakable spiritual life lifeline tethered to Jesus. And so, um, what was, what for the, for an Israelite would have felt so certain related to the promises of Abraham through all those years or is now the argument, the argument for the, for the author saying like we have that now so much more in Jesus who is like literally tethered into the holy place like the 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 rock the anchor is is set on God himself and and so we should feel so sure in the midst of a changing sea or tide like we as a boat should be anchored to God himself mm. yeah I love this imagery or this visual of of anchored hope and our hope and anchoring is set entirely entirely on the finished work of Christ. We don't earn it. We don't fight for it. We don't obtain it without the promise of God, who really is the only one who can uphold this sort of promise. And we do it all under the death and resurrection of Christ. So when you start to feel afraid for your faith or whatever, remember that the anchor and the one holding your faith steadfast is God himself. And now there's got to be, if you're once again, if you're an Israelite, like the practices of the tabernacle and the temple were so ingrained for a thousand plus years at this point. And um, this is where atonement happens. This is where the Holy of Holy is. This is how God and man ultimately are reconciled together. And so for this author to come around and be like, yeah, but the Messiah, that one that was always promised, was also a priest. And he's a priest of a much better thing. That had to be unpacked quite a bit. And and there's a question of like, okay, well, the Messiah is in the line of Judah and priests are always Levites. Like, what do we do with that? And, and how do we make sense then? Why is his promises better than than the promises related to to Moses? And so all of that starts being played in. And and what I think the author is doing in this whole section of Melchizedek is going, look, the Levitical system was tied to Moses. It was tied to to the the the, the covenant that was made with Moses, which was about land and some blessing and uh, some of these pieces there that had to do with Israel as a nation. They were it was always about Jacob's descendants and and all the people people tied into that. And, and they had priests, and the priests were tied into that whole system. But we also read about this priest in, in Genesis, and it feels kind of random because it's just a few verses. He's kind of a random character that almost is never mentioned again other than the psalm, one psalm talking about it. And, and so, um, but the, the author is brilliant to sort of use that as a paradigm. And, and maybe the person, because he's the king of righteousness or the king of Salem, um, which would have been peace or Jerusalem itself, um, had those titles that maybe this is Jesus, maybe it's the theophany. But he also may be just going, okay, we also know of a priest. And a priest that like had a, a greater authority or position than Abraham, like the father of all the, the Israelites. Like, because he blessed, because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, like he was a greater thing than Abraham, who's like the greatest thing to any Israelite. And and not only that, but Abraham's covenant was about the blessing of the nations, not just Israel and what it was going to get out of obedience. It was about God's work to bless all the nations. And so we have a priesthood tied to this idea of God blessing the nations and a priest who was greater than the greatest person in our faith system. And, and so the author's going, Jesus is like that. 
And not only that, but that that priest never had a starter beginning. There's no genealogy conversation, which we would have had with every Levitical priest. Uh, there's no genealogy mm-hmm. conversation. There's no beginning and end to his story. And we don't know when he died or anything like that. And that's Jesus. He's eternal. It's not about genealogy. It's about God's chosen man. And not only that, it's about blessing the nations. And not only that, it's someone who uh, didn't die. Like his his priesthoods in perpetuity, very unlike everything else in the Levitical system. And so um, I think I hope to encapsulate in what I just said, the large idea of this whole argument that's around Melchizedek. So the author setting it up here, I'm just going to say something yeah. quickly because I think you probably covered most of it, but is showing here that the line of the priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to that of the Levites. And then we will find out why that's important in our next section we talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so this that Levitical priesthood, like it just never came to completion. Uh, it talks about being perfect, but uh, the word there is sort of consummated, completed. It it never finished. It was annual. It was continual. It was daily. Um, it kept involving priests that would die um, and all this kind of stuff. And so this new idea, this new high priest uh, in Jesus, who entered into a holy space not made by man, but God's true holy space in front of God. Um, it's distinct from everything we've had before. And so that old way, which was just a picture, it's abrogated, it's repealed. It's a system of dying priests that constant reminders of sin and death. But we have Jesus now who paid the sin and death so that our constant reminder is life and mercy. And there's an old way and a new way. And the invitation then is to this new way, this this distinct way. So the argument here is that Jesus was the first priest after Melchizedek not to be a Levite. And the emphasis here is on the eternality of it, that he wasn't subject to law and death. And because Jesus is high priest permanently and forever, he can save to the uttermost, like the verse says, those who draw near to God through him, which is just incredible to think about this permanency of priesthood. Yeah, it's yeah, he's he's the perfect version of everything people have been longing for and everything that people found like fault uh with with the struggle with the old system. Jesus does perfectly and he's the high peace and and God's word has spoken this. That's why it's so sure. That once again there's a the callback to that like that we should feel certain about this. Um because there probably was a struggle being like are you are you sure we shouldn't go back to the priesthood and stuff like that. And the author's like no, don't go back to the priesthood. That old way is gone. And we have this new priest. So if you're a priest, the priest, um, the, the picture that starts getting painted is a priest has to show up every time they go into the temple with, with an offering, with a sacrifice or some sort of animal that they would bring in as part of whatever it is that they're working to atone for and things like that. And, and Jesus doesn't do this as the priest. He, he brings himself. He becomes the object. And we'll see this even more uh, in the coming chapters, but like he becomes the object that brings into, into the, 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 the holy place, the, 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 the holy of holies in heaven. And this new covenant becomes better than the old. And what makes it better? And the, the author says, what makes it better is there's, it's built upon better promises. Um, there was fault in the old one, and the fault was really with the people. And they just, the, the promise of blessing and the land and, and that the laws, that they would follow the laws and that they would be transformed by it, they just never were. And we really needed, in the Jeremiah passage here, we really needed God to, to, to remember sin no more and for our sin to be dealt with and new hearts to be given. And so that old system 
is obsolete. And, and we should be careful. Like sometimes it's like, well, that sold system just like failed. It's like, well, that's not exactly true. The, the, the language there is obsolete. And, and the difference, it's almost like the difference between uh, iPhone 1 to like iPhone 10. And it's like iPhone 1 was great. And it served its function, but it can never do all the things that iPhone X was meant to do. It, it, it was it was the older thing, and now we have the true newer thing with so much better promises, so much better blessing that comes with it. So when we think about Hebrews and this idea of Jesus being better, all of this argument was building to this to this point that Jesus is the better high priest. He is perfect and he is complete. His lineage is not hereditary through birth. Um, it wasn't completed at a certain age, but it is full and complete and sufficient in the line of Melchizedek, who didn't pass down the rule to others. And so because of this completeness, Christ is fully sufficient to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And guys, this is a gospel picture we see. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's different than we as Gentiles and non- you know, non-Jews tend to tell the gospel, but we hear another gospel presentation in this story of Jesus as the better and complete high priest for all time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a beautiful and complex and culturally at times distant um, picture, but it's, it's such a crucial one to understand too. Psalm 144. Yeah. So I think again, we hear an emphasis on God's authority over creation and his character to us, which like he's loving and he's a fortress and he's a stronghold. Uh, And comparing that to the fact that we are like breath. God is eternal. God is complete. God is full. And we are just but a breath. Yeah, there's definitely an asking true for like blessing from God, particularly in battle, but also beyond that. Uh, and then some some superscripts also connect us to David and Goliath. That David's sort of in this about to have this battle, and he's asking for God's blessing in the midst of it. And Psalm 142. So this is such a good encouragement to cry out when we're struggling and you can cry out, you are my refuge and you, God, are my portion in the land of the living. Hebrews points out the sufficiency of Christ so well. And I think this passage is, goes right along with it, backing that up. Yeah. And, and reading through lament, I mean, limitations too. Like God, yeah. God has given us not only a lot of individual Psalms, but a book like Lamentations to be like, look, like I, I'm, I'm, I can handle my people struggling like not just happy-go-lucky putting a smile on the face, but there's a healthy way to do that. And I do want you to bring those things to me but and, and to bring those struggles, but we'll, we'll work through that, that God is always hope, even in the midst of the struggles. Mm-hmm. Next week. So you're going to read quite a few different prophets next week, but you're going to start with Habakkuk. And I really enjoy Habakkuk. It's it's unique in that it's really just kind of a recorded dialogue between Habakkuk and God, where Habakkuk is asking a lot of the same questions about injustice that we also ask. So pay attention to how he approaches God. How does Habakkuk communicate his questions to God? And as you read it, you you know we automatically put these sort of t- tones of voices on the reading. So try out a couple of tones. Try reverence. Try stubbornness. How do you read? and perceive that differently as you read Habakkuk. And then in the New Testament, you're going to hit on chapter 11. We know this of Hebrews, and we know this is the hall of faith. We're all pretty familiar with it, but read it in the context of the whole book. How is it different, or how does your understanding change when you read it in light of the previous 10 chapters? And then look at the specific names of people who are in that. How how did the author choose those names now that you've read the first 10 chapters of Hebrews? 
Yeah. Yeah. Habakkuk. I mean, it's a great, and yeah, he has this dialogue. He's going to wait in his watchtower and we'll get to watch this prophet, but we'll, we'll get to see, and maybe you can relate to sort of the question of like, God, I just want to see and understand what's coming next. I just want to know what you're doing and what you're up to. And God provides some answers. And it's interesting to watch Habakkuk kind of process the, the God actually answering the questions for him when other prophets don't necessarily get those answers. And so um, I think it becomes interesting when we struggle and want those answers from God, um, maybe to have some uh, have some perspective uh, that, that Habakkuk ends up with. Uh, and then New Testament, um, it, there's a significant chapter, I think, by chapter 10 that, that, that there's sort of a pivot in this letter uh, around, I think, the therefore persevere in the faith. And so think about all the arguments we've had for 10 chapters. And, and the author is about to go, okay, like, at the end of the day, let's get into some like, here's now how you should live and let's persevere in the face, run the race and like think through, all right, what is those first 10 chapters really have to do with perseverance uh, in, in the faith? And that's it for us this week. Thanks y'all. Thank you.